It's Monday, April 17th, 2023, and you're listening to episode 611 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 37 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Wayne. My name is DJ. Hi, I'm Josh. And this is Chris. As you can hear, we have no Dan this week. We are doing another one of our remote episodes. And for this one, we're going to talk about the topic of paid GMing. So I wanted to introduce a personal friend of mine who also is a fellow podcaster from Gaming with Gage and Friends, a longtime member of the Fear the Boot community, as well as somebody who has given us a lot of feedback on Skies of Glass. Josh, tell the folks a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Josh. As Wayne said, I am a uh, one of the regular hosts on the Gaming with Gage podcast. I also do the question of the day on several different Discord servers, including the Fear the Boot Discord server most recently. That's the newest one in my collection. You finally got that over there, so congratulations for that. Thank you. Yes, I appreciate that. And, you know, honestly, they give some of the most dynamic and interesting feedback to the questions. I also am a professional GM, which is why Wayne has me on today. And Chris, did you get lost somewhere? Because it's been like three years now. It's hard to get lost when you're constantly on the move, I guess, would be the best way to describe that. Yeah, what did we figure out before we got on the mics? It was July of 2020, I think. After Fear the Conline 2, we did an episode where we talked about online cons. You could say I've been around a bit since then. Let's see if I can do my best in a nutshell answer. And that won't be like the joke where it's like slightly muffled or anything. In July of 2020, I was five months from moving back to the lower 48 from Alaska. So I was uh, still kind of freshly back in the, the lower part of the U.S. or the central part of the U.S., I guess, depending upon your perspective of things. By that time, I had moved out of the temporary apartment housing that my job that I was at put me up in and was in a house. And buying a house in a pandemic is not a fun thing to do, but it is something that you can do. It's just not necessarily that great of a time. Next was in Saginaw, Michigan. And we were there for, well, let's see. We were there until about October of 21, because at the end of 2020, the job that I had, I lost. The position was eliminated, and I went to work a few months later in Lansing, Michigan, but still lived in Saginaw, and you can look that up on a map to see what kind of commute that I had on the daily. Did that for about four months until I got the job in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and so in October 21, that's where we moved to, and so that's where we have been since. Uh, technically, we've moved at least once in town, having bought a house here now in town. We lived in an apartment for about a year. And so that's where we are now, and that's where we're, you know, kind of looking to stay. But, you know, so far so good. We've been here over a year, so fingers crossed, I guess. Even not being on the show, you've been mentioned a lot because I have sung the praises of Wolverines Take the Highway to the Danger Zone. Yes. Your Savage Worlds product. Yep. And I, I haven't been completely inactive in that time. I also got on Gaming with Gage and Friends with Josh and yourself, for that matter. I've continued in a certain fashion to uh, put out episodes of both the APs, although one finished and one has been kind of languishing in production for some time. And I do need to get that back going. That's kind of my bad. 
And then you and I, Wayne, along with Dot, also recently started Bite Size Tales, our little flash fiction audio podcast, which is a wonderful little podcast to listen to if you've got a good, you know, 10, 12 minutes, either in your commute or in your lunch hour, to uh, hear some great flash fiction. I loved the Christmas episode. Was that the first one, the one that came out right before the holidays or on the holidays? Yeah, the Christmas episode was kind of like our special launch episode where we actually, each one of us contributed a story. Normally, it's just one of us that contributes, but that particular one was just three different Christmas tales from all of us that we just mashed together. Completely different stories. We will occasionally be doing that, you know, depending upon certain events or whatnot. But yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you like that. Thank you. We did that for our very first episode as well. We call them chapters. So chapter one Mm -hmm. was a story from each of us. And I have something special planned for April Fool's Day. Yes, you do. I'm not sure when this episode will release, but I am going to make a fool out of myself on April (laughs) Fool's Day. And Chris has already heard the episode because it is fully recorded and I just have to schedule it to release. It's a beautiful thing. That's all I'm going to say about it. It's just a beautiful thing. (laughs) I'm really excited for it. I have really enjoyed consuming. Feed me more bite-sized tales, please. Excellent. You'll, You'll be getting more every Wednesday. Every Wednesday. And I have just added it to my podcast list of things to listen to while I'm delivering mail. Yay. Perfect. See? Thank you. That's exactly what the intention was. That's awesome. See, and I watched him do it because he's on video. I saw him hold up his phone and I saw him do the thing. I also added gaming with Gage and friends because it's been mentioned multiple times and I keep meaning to do it. Normally, I'm in the truck listening and I'm like, I can't pull my phone out and do that because I'm you know, throwing mail left and right. Now I'm not doing anything. So <laughs> grab the phone, do it. So the topic I wanted to touch on here is... I have heard so many stories from Josh lately about paid GMing. And the first time I even heard the concept was from Brodor. And then I found out Chris has done this. DJ, you talked about you had a game that was going to happen that hadn't happened yet. Yeah, still hasn't. In my case, the only thing I've touched on with this is backer level rewards for Kickstarter and Patreon. And that, to me, I don't think of as the same thing. That's more just fulfilling something versus putting it out there and being paid for a specific game. Well, depending, though, Wayne, how you wanted to find it, you probably actually have been a paid GM because you've run events at cons. And while, granted, fear the con, you don't have to pay to sit down at certain events. People do pay to attend the con and sit in, you know, at the tables you had. And other cons do where you do have to buy the those tickets. And so if you are, you know, a con GM in a certain sense, it is paid GMing. And I think at least from my perspective, we can get absolutely get in this because I want to hear how both uh, DJ and Josh approach this. I look at them both in much the same way as far as how I prepare myself, how I'm looking to create this particular event and or run it for that matter as well. I will say for me, there's a different level of stress that goes in when I'm sitting down to a table and I know people have paid money to be there. Now, that could be they paid money to go to that convention and now they're dedicating that time or they paid money to back me on Patreon or on uh, Kickstarter. There's just this level of I need to make extra sure they have a good time. And really, that comes for any con game for me more so than my home game. My home game, I expect them to bring it. You know, I expect something out of my players at home. But for a con game or a game where there's any kind of money involved, I feel like it's more on me to provide. 
Actually, that's a really good place to start because there is a different level of pressure to provide, to produce, to entertain, to make sure that what you're going to be doing is, you know, quote unquote, worth the money of this. And it, and it is definitely different from then when you sit down, you know, whether it's a one shot online with some friends or even in campaign play, while as the game master, you do still feel that way. It's a different sense of pressure for me because there's money behind it. Josh, especially, do you feel that same way or is it a different thing entirely for you? I haven't technically been paid anything yet, but to get people engaged, I definitely want to make sure everybody is engaged in the games. Only recently have I asked people what they want from the games. Otherwise, I just kind of start things. And then when I notice someone's not really engaging with what I'm giving them, try to poke around as the game's flowing to figure out what it is and then direct part of the game in that direction so that everybody is getting engaged. I should be asking upfront questions rather than trying to adjust things on the fly. I'll say as far as pressure goes, there absolutely is. I budget more time for prep for a paid game, for a paid campaign, than I do for a personal one. Though a lot of the stuff I do is functionally the same, especially because I run predominantly online, I go about it in a more systematic way with paid GMing. I also look for ways that I can reuse things that I've used in the past to save prep or recreate similar experiences to ones I've created before that I knew were really popular, say, with a past group of players to try and recreate a similar experience with a future group of players because I know it worked, right? You have a good product, keep using it. You know, that's not to say that I try and fit everything into a specific mold, but if I know that there's certain story beats that got really strong reactions, certain story arcs that got really positive reactions, I'll reuse them or try and extrapolate them to whatever campaign I'm running now or whatever one shot I'm running now. A big part of it, too, is the ring mastery of it. And there's another level of pressure, not just in prep, but in being a ringmaster and ensuring every single one of your players or customers gets their time to shine, really gets a, a moment to enjoy it, because it's not just, oh, man, I wish I had a few more minutes to do my thing in last session. It's I paid to do my thing in last session and I didn't get to do it. And so, you know, there is pressure on several different sides because it's also customer service at the same time. The group that I'm gaming with right now, I know who wants to be super active and which sessions they want to be super active in. But if they were paying customers, it would be a totally different world. I would be under way different pressure. And I currently do everything online. But if the group that's trying to get together to pay me, I think that they're all in my area, which means there's a chance that I might be doing this in person. And that's going to also determine what type of experience they get too because in person groups I'm a props guy so I will create an experience that actually brings up a point I wanted to address in that in that regard because there are certain elements I mean yes you can do this in the physical space as well but uh, absolutely VTTs allow for certain things that the physical space can't necessarily duplicate I'll give you an example from the recent paid gig that I did. And then I want to hear, you know, your guys' thoughts on this. 
as I was going through the prep and I was corresponding with this group, and they were a group that I had done a paid gig for, a one-shot for previously. It happened to be a birthday situation. You know, I had asked them questions, what kind of requirements or, or what kind of things are you looking for with the adventure? Is there a certain place you want this to take place? And I had planned on using a real simple VTT to display maps. I wasn't going to get into tactical stuff because they were all still relatively new players except for one of them. But one of the things that they had mentioned to me that they really got a big kick out of the first time around was they liked being able to see the dice that everybody rolled. We had used Roll20 that first time, and so they liked being able to see the visual dice that everybody had there. And I was going to use a different VTT this time, and I was actually kind of happy that they had said that because I discovered that the other VTT didn't have that same dice functionality that Roll20 had. And so I switched everything over to there because of that specific request. That was a visual thing that they really wanted to have. And getting the maps and everything, too, were really important for me. But I didn't necessarily delve into prepping sound effects and fog of war elements and other sort of visual things, you know, that accoutrement, if you will, around that because... I wanted to focus more on the gameplay, but I think that that stuff can absolutely be very important to that overall experience, especially if people are paying for it. That's what I want to ask Josh about, because I've heard some of the prep that you've put into these games from an experience standpoint. I'll give an example of my Tomb of Annihilation campaign. That's a 5e module. Came out a few years back. It's one part hex crawl, one part dungeon crawl, split up into two halves. It's set on a sort of tropical land, and the players hit a hurricane. I wanted to go for something different, you know, man versus nature rather than man versus man, you know, that type of conflict. I spent about, oh, four hours generating, and when I say generating, I mean I was using mid-journey AI uh, to create art for these hurricanes. Different slides as calm ocean, clouds in the distance, rolling storm coming in, ferocious storm, and then hurricane passing. So I had these different slides that I had prepared. I created animations that had rain that progressively got worse as the different slides would come up. And I had about a dozen different sound effects that I would play and layer on top of each other. Wind, stronger wind, crashing waves, lightning, heavy rain, sounds of trees breaking in the distance. You know, and I would layer these things on top of each other and I would increase the volume uh, uh, so that the players would actually have to like raise their voices to talk over it the way you might have to shout at each other if you're in a ferocious storm. How was that received? It was received pretty well. They had a very, very good time doing it. As is ever the case for a GM, paid or not, they don't appreciate you half as much as they should. And uh, it's hard to indicate how much work went into it. Really, when it was all said and done, I had about eight hours of prep for what was functionally one encounter that took an hour and a half of that game. But I knew it would be a big moment. I knew they would love it. And I knew that it would create a really positive customer experience. And that's why I did it. It was worth it. Is that work you can then reuse and run it again for different groups? 
Almost certainly. You know, I save all of my artwork that I use for this stuff. I have a big repository of royalty-free sound effects. I keep all of this stuff just so I can reuse it. And a lot of that, too, is in part the cost. You're never going to get rich being a paid GM. I charge 15 bucks per person per session. After you factor in prep time and the cut that the service I use takes, I'm usually making less than seven bucks an hour. It's not much money when it's all said and done, but that's not really why I do it. Yeah, the money's nice, but it's also pretty cool to have a group that's highly motivated to be there because they paid for it. How long have you been doing it? Off and on since about 2018. I started in 2018 just kind of doing events, though. You know, like, oh, you know, I'm having a, a birthday party and it'd be really cool if we played D&D. Could I buy you a case of beer and give you 50 bucks? And I, I literally think that was my first paid GMing gig. A friend saying, can I buy you a case of beer and give you 50 bucks? You gave the price that you get, Josh. I understand you've been told that you charge less than other people and have been criticized for that. One pretty nasty case in particular where I had a GM write me a very hateful, hateful private message about how little I charge versus how much work I put into it because he said that I was undercutting all of the GMs and being really duplicitous. I didn't feel that that was a fair critique of my motivations. I thought that that was pretty upsetting, actually. It really kind of ruined my entire day when I got that. But yes, every four-letter word under the sun, and I'm not going to make you bleep them out, so I won't read the letter, but uh, it was pretty nasty. I think that's what my potential group, I think that's the amount that I worked out with them was 15 bucks. So, I mean, I, that doesn't sound out of range, but I didn't know what to base mine off of either, so... Chris, how did you get started in this? And then for both Chris and Josh, what are the websites? Because I know you guys actually put these out there on certain websites and list it as a way for people to contact you. I honestly can't remember how much I charged. I want to say it was because I've only done just a couple of things online. And I think that my rates at the time were right around Josh's range, if not a little less. As far as sites go, I'm listed on startplaying.games, uh, and that is kind of where I got my start. And I first heard about this. They were doing some initial launch marketing, and that was where I learned about it, checked it out, and thought this might be kind of a cool thing to do because I wasn't necessarily at the time in a lot of games. And so I looked at this as kind of an interesting opportunity. Along with that, I looked at this as an opportunity to find a niche that wasn't 5e, because one of the things that I've noticed since the time that I joined up until now is that just like in the hobby industry itself, 5e GMs dominate those listings. Other games are represented, but not nearly to the same level. And I know for me personally, that if I was to actually pursue this with any fervor, I, that's still what I would end up doing is probably not. 5e games and not because i don't know the game and can't run it that's just kind of how i'm wired to take that alternate path and that would be where my appeal would lie uh, and i kind of enjoy those games a little bit more so josh i know uh you have other games listed but pretty much people only reach out to you for D D. That's right. I'm also on startplaying.games. It's a really good service. You know, they take a, a percentage cut of each player based on how much you charge, but they handle a lot of the tax paperwork and everything like that for you. So that, that there, there are some very strong benefits. In my profile, I've got 
I don't know, something like a dozen and a half different systems that I've listed that I can run. And I have only ever been contacted about D&D, and it took me the better part of a year and a half, I think, to actually get a non-D&D game running on Start Playing Games. Uh, that's a game of all flesh must be eaten. Fantastic game from the early 2000s, late 90s. All right, now's the fun part. I want to hear either the weirdest request that you've gotten, the strangest feedback. It just, you have got to be running into interesting people out there that are wanting to pay for somebody to run them a game online. I mean, yeah. any interaction online has the potential for weirdness, but something about this just tells me there have to be good, weird stories. So about once a month, I get a request for some version of erotic roleplay. It's almost always one-on-one, though I do have to say the one where it was a husband and wife uh, was probably the funniest. I got some very distinct impressions on that one, but I think the strangest request I ever got, somebody was asking me to base a game of D&D around a... Disney Channel special from 1997 called Halloween Town that featured Michael Jackson and elements of the Cars 2 movie. And I'm paraphrasing here because the multiple paragraphs was truly epic art in terms of how it was written. But this guy wanted some seriously niche stuff and he wanted me to find four more players who were interested in this with him. So he didn't even bring the group. Like I know that special because I don't know if I've ever mentioned it on here. For some reason, my dad loves Disney Channel stuff. When I, as a teenager, got my first job and bought a satellite dish and had it installed, my dad would either be watching war movies, westerns, or Disney Channel specials. So I saw a lot of those in the late 90s. Oh, yeah, maybe you would have been an ideal player for this game, Wayne. Maybe I should have reached out to you. No, I wouldn't have been. <laughs> I think there is a lot of interest out there for people of having things run that they remember from their childhood. I mean, I recently ran that Panicula game and people jumped at it because they remembered it from their childhood. And that's why I wanted to run it, too, was because those kids books had a strong childhood vibe to me. You know, I remember them reading them so fondly as a kid. Chris, have you had any weird requests? Weird requests? Not necessarily. There was a couple of corporate-related events that I did, and these were all relatively new players as well. One of them got into the description of his character, and I think he was, you know, the person in, in the office who's always that kind of joker of a person who's always, you know, the, he's the funny guy or whatever. I think that was this particular person because he began describing his character. He started off with some of the more mundane things, but then he got in deeper into the description and described how his character had type 1 diabetes and had all these other conditions, which were not part of, you know, the event. And he was doing it to be funny, and clearly the group that he was with, they knew who he was and they, they were picking up on his jokes. During that same event, though, there was also an attendee of that event who was probably someone who was there who didn't want to be there. And they became that sort of silent player at the table, but it was different because it was a player who didn't necessarily really want to be at the table, which was an interesting experience for me in the sense that 
I had to work really hard to make sure, you know, that I was distributing the spotlight properly. But this person proved to be even additionally more difficult because they didn't necessarily even really want the spotlight. And so, you know, as a GM, I kind of had to pivot a little bit in the sense that, you know, you had to pick up on those signals and basically kind of ignore them to a certain extent until it was their turn and initiative and make sure that they were at least paying attention. That was a little odd. What was the most satisfying event that either of you have run? For me, it was definitely the birthday event that I did. And only because they were extremely grateful. They were all people who wanted to be there. They were excited at the prospect of being able to celebrate the birthday of the the person that they were all gathered for. And then that sort of already preconditioned them to have a good time. And what was really satisfying about it for me is they came back to me two years later and asked me to do it again and run another birthday session for them. And they had all shown up again and we had new characters and we went forward with the adventure and again, had a really, really good time. And the nice part for me was they really got into it and they were making use of things on their character sheet stuff because they were new players telling them that they didn't have to worry about, but they were asking questions and they were engaging me on more than just that surface level. I was very appreciative of that. I ran a game. It was Dungeons and Dragons. The players were really enjoying these sort of little more melodramatic tidbits I'd throw out. And so I created a very dramatic story arc that involved families feuding between each other, miscommunication, and it was really Shakespearean, like a weird mix of Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet at the end of the day. It capped off in such a poignant moment. The combination of the art, the music I was playing at the same time, I think the character voices that I was doing. And when that sort of climactic moment was done, the players took about 10 minutes of the session time to just, whoa, and like talk about it out of character and just sort of jam on it. You know, those moments happen in non-paid games too, and that's deeply satisfying as well. They're few, far between, and they're like, you know, precious gems to me. But when it happens with paying customers who then want to take the time they've paid for and say, no, 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 Josh, hold on a second. We need to talk about what just happened and how amazing it was. That was a deeply satisfying moment for me. Nice. Wow. That's a lot to absorb. So, Chris, the birthday people, did you tell them that they could do this like all year round and like in a campaign type setting? I think they were aware of that. At least I would hope that they were aware of that. I, I know that one of their group was a regular player, had some experience because they specifically requested to be a ranger and they knew kind of what to do with the fifth edition ranger to be pretty effective. I never pitched to them the possibility of doing a regular campaign just because I, I guess I kind of felt that was out of the scope. But I, you know, obviously, as Josh mentioned before about the customer service and even to a certain extent salesmanship, mentioning to them, anytime you guys are ever interested in doing this again, let me know. Always happy to help. You're a great group, which, you know, all of this stuff is truth. It's not just me saying it for the sake of, you know, trying to fish for more cash. But, you know, making making yourself available, because obviously I'm auditioning for them in a certain sense, and they're auditioning for me also in a certain sense. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I actually had one campaign that I killed because I was just not gelling with the group. They were all about, like, just 
joking around, really sort of ruining the flow of what they said they wanted. I would do a whole bunch of prep in a direction that they said they were going to go in the adventure, and then they would intentionally go the other direction. And after about five sessions, I just sort of sat back and said, guys, I just don't think I'm the right GM for you. And it's because every single session beyond the first one, I felt like I was smacking my head against a wall, and they were just paying me to, to like, mess with me. And it was really frustrating. I guess that would be a good question. Beyond that one experience, have you killed any other amounts of paid experience? Do you have a limit? I've kicked a couple of players, individual players who were troublesome players. You know, again, having to look at the enjoyment and satisfaction of the larger group. From time to time, you have a player that's just not gelling. And one time, you know, I just had a polite conversation with him and he was like, yeah, I didn't really feel like I was going well with this group either. And so it was no harm, no foul, just mismatched group versus player. Another time I had a player who um, who was making some rather untoward jokes about women and two of the other players were women. I wouldn't have really appreciated that to begin with. But, you know, then you have other customers who are like, I'm being made uncomfortable with this guy. I ended up kicking him out in the middle of a session, just being like, hey, I don't care if you're joking around. I don't care what you're doing. Like, this isn't working. I will process a refund for you when I'm done with this session. Thank you very much. And kick. Like, it wasn't even a discussion. That's one of the perks of gaming online. You know, I control the red button and I can just knock the guy out. I guess that's something I didn't realize from the way you're describing it. In Chris's stories, all of them I've ever heard, it's been an entire group that came to him. Are these usually groups that come, or is it a collection of random people that have joined? Both. I've gotten a pretty decent amount of both. And sometimes I'll get part of a group. You know, I'll get two or three people that want a game together, and then I'm more than happy to start a game as long as I have three people, right? That's my minimum number of players, is three people. I'll say, okay, how do you guys feel about me posting an opening online for two more people? And they usually say yes. I've only had one group say no. And then they said, and we'll pay extra for it to be a small group. So, okay, cool. Yeah, I'll, you want to pay extra? Fine. It's a solid mix. I've had only one campaign that it was entirely random people, like that nobody knew each other. That was one thing that I was thinking about earlier. And because I, I have not had to deal with this because I've only done one shots. I haven't done any long-term games. I would have to imagine... The session zero conversation or however, you know, you want to, to phrase that when it comes to critical things like particularly character death, how do you handle, how do you approach those kinds of things? Because obviously if I'm a paying customer, I may have the expectation that my character is going to survive. You know, it's not necessarily like a video game where I'm plunking in, you know, 25 cents or whatever. And I know that eventually I'm going to die. But the the cost of entry is very small. So I'm okay with that because I can then just put in another quarter. Where and how do you handle those types of conversations? Well, and also, do you charge for Session Zero? Because I know you're a big Session Zero guy as well, Josh. That was going to be my question. (laughs) So the answer is, yes, I charge for it, but then I give session one for free. I charge for session zero to make people who say they're going to show up, show up. That is born from hard-learned experience of if you say it's a free session zero, if you genuinely don't charge for session zero, half the time you get a whole bunch of people who sign up for the game, they take slots other paying people who would show up would have taken, and then they don't show. So I do charge for session zero, and then if everybody's feeling good after session zero, I tell them, hey, and session one's free. 
So that's that answer. Second, I always advocate for a formal session zero, even if you're playing among friends. It's not an option playing with a paid group. You have to do it. You have to have notes. You have to be thorough and detailed about what people say. You have to get commitments from people, too. Hey, guys, we are playing this game every Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern. Is that right to you all? Yes? Okay. Every Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern. How do we feel about character death? And then I will go name by name by name by name and call on each person who's present and be like, Wayne, what do you think? Do you want your character to die? If so, how? If not, you know, and we discuss it and it's public open commitments from people, mostly so that they don't really have much room to waffle. And I take those notes and I leave the session zero notes in a place where they can be accessed at any time by any of the players at any point in the campaign. The way to do it. Yeah, I would say that honestly, that's that's also just a good practice in general, whether you know paid or unpaid when it comes to those types of conversations. And I think it's also fair too. I would imagine to after you've gone in a few sessions, you know, like we've talked about on uh, uh, Gaming with Gage and Friends, the whole session three point five. After you've been in there a few times, make sure that everybody is indeed you know still on board with their original thoughts, because once you get to know those characters and get a good feel for the direction of the game that you're in, your opinion might change. I love your solution to session zero because I'd been thinking about that and it's like I would require a session zero if I were going to run a campaign. I do session zeros always anyway, but if I'm going to do it for a paid group, I'm definitely going to require it, but I wouldn't feel right charging them for it. I love your solution of yes to session zero, but then give them session one free. That's a great solution to that. Thanks, man. Yeah. Like I said, I just had too many people who would sign up and then not show up. And that is, uh, you know, it's like doctor's office rules. You make an appointment and then you don't show, you still get charged because you're taking the spot another patient could have taken. What do you do if you've got that commitment at it? You know, if people are showing up on the Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern and then there's the one week when somebody doesn't show up and you know that they're not showing up because my car broke down. I can't get to the computer. I'm just not going to be there this week. Do you have that happen? Yes, I have had that happen. As long as they tell me, you know, at any point before the game time that they're not going to show, I don't charge them. Like, they could let me know 45 minutes before and I won't charge them. But if they don't tell me they're not coming, they're still getting charged. Like, if they just no call, no show, yeah, I'm, I'm going to charge them. And uh, mostly I just do that to be friendly, I guess, about it. And of course, if somebody has an emergency and they say, hey, I'm I'm really sorry I didn't come. Such and such happened. Wife was in the hospital, broke my toe, whatever it is. Then I'll process a refund for them, too. No hard feelings. And I don't like require any proof of it. I just take their word at it. Most people are generally pretty honest. And not that you implied this or anything, but I'm not going to base my customer service on the occasional jerk when most people are pretty great. What do you do story-wise? Do you just proceed as if their character's not there? Basically, yeah. So I tell people, hey, if it's a balance issue, like I need your character there in order to balance an encounter, which is a big thing in 5e, I will probably turn your character into a healing bot or a fighting bot or whatever. But don't worry, even if your character gets knocked down, they will never die if you're not present, right? Like, I'm really explicit about that, that the worst thing that can happen to them is they get knocked unconscious. And if the player were to come back the next week, 
I'd give them all their stuff back, all their spell slots, all of their hit points, whatever. It would be as if it didn't happen at all, because none of that's their fault. They didn't agree to sign on to any of that. So I typically proceed as if they're not there to begin with, and if I really need the character to be there, they are in absolutely no peril of being seriously or permanently injured, disfigured, changed without the player's consent or interaction. Good to know both monetarily and story-wise. In case I run into this. I think that's a good place to wrap us up there. I want to thank Chris for coming back. DJ, it's always great to have you on again. I'll always be here, Wayne. Josh, thank you so much for helping us cover this topic. Because one of the things I'd like to see happen with some of these remote episodes is hitting the topics that we just don't have that expertise to be able to cover without bringing in some guests. And... I said you were the first person I thought of when we started talking about it. So thank you again for coming in and helping us out with this one. Thank you so much for having me. I've listened to Fear the Boot for a long time. This was some serious wish fulfillment for me being on an episode. And for all of you out there, thank you so much for listening. All of these links will be in the show notes because I'm going to send Dan a huge list of links that will be his problem to deal with. Suck it, Dan. <laughs> so until next time again thanks for all your support and i'll see you later this has been a production of fear the boot copyright 2023 listeners are free to use this episode in a non-commercial endeavor so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com you can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com if you wish to support this show and its related endeavors you can do so at patreon.com slash fear the boot.